Welcome to episode 99 of the Conscient Podcast. The last episode of season 3, which you might recall is on the theme of radical listening. I invite you to guess what is this space? There are some sonic clues. It's clearly an indoor space. And yet there is a hollowing wind with a deep, rich texture. You can hear the gentle crackling of wood. The occasional slap of a rope. A squirrel. This soundscape was recorded on January 19th, 2022, in a barn, on a farm, that belonged to composer R. Murray Schaefer, and is now the home of his wife, the singer Eleanor James. The farm is located near Indian River, Ontario, about 20 kilometers east of Peterborough, which is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe Mississauga people. Adjacent to Haudenosaunee territory and in the territory covered by the Williams Treaty. I went to the farm to record winter soundscapes for this episode, Winter Diary Revisited, which is a soundscape composition dedicated to the memory of composer, writer, music educator, and environmentalist R. Murray Schaefer. While visiting the farm, I had a conversation with Eleanor James about Murray and his relationship to winter. Here is an excerpt. I'm with Eleanor James, and I just spent some time in your barn. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I recorded a bunch of sounds, and I went into the forest, and I, I captured uh, uh, sounds of wind. And, and some of the things that Murray and I did when we did the Winter Diary, which is to, to do these kind of yelling out and to, to sort of alive in the space and get a, a feeling of it.
so many things that you could talk about, uh, about Murray, but any thoughts that you have, um, his thoughts about soundscapes, of course, but also around recording and winter sounds. Did anything come to mind? Well, there's a couple of things come to mind which are in his creative output, and and uh, one of them is uh, Music in the Cold. It's a lovely little manifesto done in an artistic sort of style about um, how it's better to be in the north than in the south, and that music in the cold is tougher and hardier and more austere. And <laughs> so he goes into a diatribe about that kind of thing. And he really is a northern personality, so you have to forgive him for um, going on a rant about it. But of course, it was an artistic creation, so it was intended to be hyperbolic. And uh, I think it's quite delightful. It's got a midnight blue cover and then the title, Music in the Cold. Speaking of which, he has written a wonderful string quartet called Winter Birds, which the Molinari Quartet of Montreal have recorded. And he wrote it, and his own voice occurs right in the very last movement of it. And he describes the winter of 2005, looking out his his studio window at the birds feeding um, at the feeders. We used to fill the feeders with seeds, and we'd have all kinds of little birds coming and fluttering and going and making little soft sounds. And so in the string quartet, he describes a whole uh, event of birds just fluttering and coming and going and the total silence surrounding them, not only acoustically but visually as well, nothing but the snow, just like it is today. Snow heaped everywhere and just these little birds making tiny fluttering sounds with their wings. And uh, then there's the piece that he wrote for choir called Snow Forms, which is actually quite popular. And he wrote it as a graphic score, and it's written on a sort of pale turquoise green paper. And the choir reads the shapes of snow. And again, those shapes were something that he observed looking out his studio window and drew graphically and then composed it so that pitches were associated with these tones. And uh, it's just a marvelous, marvelous description of winter. And so for Murray, all of the soundscape work that he was so interested in just fed into his artistic abilities and his artistic gifts as a composer. I reread Murray's Music in the Cold book when I got back to Ottawa, which he wrote in 1977 when I was 17. It's interesting to look back at this piece of artistic reflection and provocation here are the last 11 lines of the book. Saplings are beginning to sprout again in the moist earth. Beneath it, animals can be heard digging their burrows. Soon, the thrush will return. The old technology of waste is gone. What then remains? The old virtues, harmony, the universal soul, hard work. I will live super sensitized 
the antenna of a new race. I will create a new mythology. It will take time. It will take time. There will be time. I remember back in August of 1985, the late composer Robert Rosen, Murray and I produced a series of ecological radio programs to be performed at Spray Lake near Canmore, Alberta. Murray was in Banff to present his music theatre piece, Princess of the Stars. We each wrote a piece of music for this natural environment. Mine was for bass clarinet and trombone called Eclog for an Alpine Meadow. That's me playing on bass clarinet. Murray was a mentor to Robert and myself on this project, sharing his vast experience in writing music for and with a natural environment. Murray's music, and in particular his research in acoustic ecology, have had a deep influence on many composers, educators, researchers, and sound artists around the world, including myself. Among other things, Murray taught me how to listen deeply. both with my ears and with a microphone. I remember long conversations with Murray about listening, radio, acoustic ecology, field recording, technology, including how to make a living as a composer. Here is a short excerpt from a conversation I had with him in July of 1990 in a restaurant in Peterborough. And I apologize for the poor quality of the recording, but I think you'll enjoy listening to Murray speak about the art of listening. And then you probe, you know, by asking sort of further questions. Was it inside? Was it outside? Was it, um, you know, are there a lot of people assembled there? Is there nobody there? I mean, is it... Um, is this in um, Canada or is it outside of Canada? Is it in Europe? I mean, you heard a train. Was it a Canadian train whistle? European train whistle? Um, you heard a language. What language was it? You heard, I mean, and any of these, you know, cues that you might have heard that would help you to identify where you were and then tell them afterwards, of course, what, you know, where the actual recording was made. But force them to sort of really use their ears to try and 
you know, did you hear any birds? Did you hear any of this? Did you hear any, you know, any any sounds that would help you to to localize? Well, I'm just saying that that's one sort of type of exercise which I think, you know, someday somebody should put together a package, an educational package. I just feel that one, you know, one has to constantly go back to nature and listen again, look again, learn again. You know, it's just as simple as that. Anytime you get too far out of touch with it, um, you you're probably going to be in trouble if you, you know, if you don't know how to come, go back and look at a butterfly, you know, because you're so spellbound by, you know, strobe lights or something. I mean, I think it's you're, you're in trouble, and. Uh, which is not to say that you can't go back and look at it and reanalyze it and change, you know, it'll change things and then you go back to your to your old environment and see things differently. In nature, what you're so conscious of is the cycle of life and death and how they, they interchange that, that um, almost sine wave of life and death, but also of silence and activity. And um, that there are certain times when certain creatures are quiet and certain other times when they speak. And it is a give and take in the natural soundscape that, um, uh, that you know, sometimes it's hard to find those rhythms in, in a modern urban soundscape where everybody's um, so aggressively trying to um, catch the attention of everyone else, you know, and creates tensions that don't exist. And they lose touch with uh, the balance of their lives. Yeah. Murray passed away on August 14, 2021, at age 88, in his farmhouse. Shortly after his passing, I was honored to be asked to write a remembrance piece about my personal experience with Murray. This request came from Eric Leonardson, president of the World Forum for Acoustic Ecology, an organization that Murray helped found in 1993 at the BAM Center and that continues its good work to this day. Kirk McKenzie and Robin Elliott of the University of Toronto also approached me to write a remembrance piece about Murray for a series of memorials they are producing about Murray and his legacy. I decided to produce a soundscape composition instead of writing an article for this remembrance piece. Here's the story. In 1996, Murray received a commission from the Akustische Kunst Department of the West German Radio, the WDR in Germany, produced by Klaus Schöning, to record a radio program about the winter soundscapes of rural Manitoba called Winter Diary. Now Murray had produced many radio pieces before for the CBC and the WDR, but he needed a hand with this rather large-scale production. So he hired me as a recordist, editor and mixer, but also as a driver and scout. I was 37 at the time and was about to be married to filmmaker Sabrina Matthews and start a family in Montreal, which we did. 
However, back then, I still had the time and the energy to do a 10-day road trip and to spend the weeks afterwards editing it all together with Murray. We certainly had a lot of fun together on that trip. Hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was fun. Winter Diary ended up winning the Carl Zucker Prize for Radio Art in 1998. I was deeply moved by the jury's statement, which I think captures the spirit of Murray's composition and the essence of our collaboration in its production. It is with great autonomy and imperturbability that Schaefer draws the sound spectrum of a Canadian winter into his acoustic image. From the calm sequence of concise sound events, an acoustic landscape emerges, almost spatial in its presence. To the point of noiselessness, of silence, everything audible is there, concretely and non-arbitrarily. It is a work which ushers its listeners to a place of unhurried, patient listening, insisting upon the wealth of nuances in acoustic perception, and takes a stand against sound refuse and staged hyperactivity. While I was doing research for this piece, I found the first draft of an unpublished 13-page essay in my archives that Murray wrote at his farm on February 15, 1997, about the creation of Winter Diary. I was so excited. It's a brilliant piece of writing about our adventures in Manitoba but the essay also includes reflections on a number of other issues, listening, art history, philosophy, his dreams, literature, and use of the microphone. And so I decided to create a composition around his essay, a sonic illustration and interpretation of his words. But first, let me tell you a bit of a story about microphones. Um, Mary had a love-hate relationship with the microphone. Here is another excerpt from that July 1990 restaurant conversation, where he talks a bit more about the notion of distant listening, which I think is a key element of his aesthetic. If the microphone replaces your ear, <laughs> um, there's something wrong, and yet you see in an awful lot of our um, listening, you know, that the microphone has replaced the ear. Uh, the, the mere fact that, for instance, we demand presence on um, all recorded sounds, and they're all close-miked, um, is, uh, is a recognition of the fact that the microphone, uh, which is an instrument for getting close-ups, um, is respected more than 
our own sort of hearing experience, the fact that we can no longer listen at a distance. Now, if you're going to get involved really with ecology and the environment, you're going to have to rediscover how to listen at a distance, because an awful lot of the sounds you're talking about are distant. think you know what I mean. I did not use any of the field recordings from our original trip in 1997, outside of those few moments of laughter. Instead, I decided to record all new material during the winter of 2022, some 25 years later, not in Manitoba, but rather around where I live in Ontario and in Quebec. Hence the idea of revisiting Winter Diary. However, I did use some field recordings from my archives, as well as a few excerpts of some of my previous soundscape compositions. All of those are noted in the episode notes. So most of the soundscapes that you're about to hear are natural but a few have been transformed using tools like GRM tools and spatializers. And I was interested in exploring that liminal space between reality and fantasy. While recording these winter soundscapes, I kept thinking about what the Karl Zucker Prize jury said about Murray's interest in the noiselessness of silence. I also thought about the idea of ushering the listener to a place of unhurried, patient listening. So I tried to explore this idea of patient, unhurried listening, as well as the notion of radical listening. Also, before we start, I wanted to let you know that some of the recordings are very quiet at the threshold of what you might be able to hear on speakers or headphones. So don't worry if you hear long silences or can't make out some of the detail, especially if you're in a car or in a more noisy environment. You can always listen to Winter Diary Revisited again in high resolution from the Conscient Podcast website. I am extremely grateful for this opportunity to honor the memory of R. Murray Schaefer, 
And I hope you enjoy this sonic illustration from his Winter Diary essay. Claude Schreier came by today to plan the Winter Diary radio program for the West German radio. After dinner, we walked the quarter mile out to the road. There was a powdering of light snow, making the landscape bright under the stars. I opened and closed the gate while Claude recorded it. Then I went to the tin mailbox and flapped the lid. Both are sounds characteristic of rural life in Canada. The flapping got the neighbor's dog barking. Then, more distantly, other dogs began to bark. Dogs were the original alarm systems in the countryside and remained so despite electronic technology. could be a thief or a wolf out there. The message is telegraphed from farm to farm and behind every dark doorway a farmer cocks his gun. The dogs grew silent again as we trudged back. Entering the warm house with a fire burning brightly in the grate, I suddenly realized that we had already discovered a valuable leitmotif for our program. The contrast between warm, populated rooms and the vast cold spaces that surround them during the Canadian winter.
There is a painting by Cornelius Kriegoff, 1815-1872, entitled Merrymaking, that illustrates this drama between interior and exterior. A party at the Jollifu Inn is breaking up, and the revelers are spilling out to depart into the cold, snowy dawn. The drama of the scene is depicted in Bruegel style. But the contrast between hot interior and cold exterior is distinctly Canadian. The same theme recurs in our best novelists. For instance, in Frederick Philip Groves' Over Prairie Trails, 1922, or in Sinclair Ross's As For Me and My House, 1941, the contrast between interior and exterior creates the drama between society and selfhood. Marshall McLuhan summed it up epigrammatically when he said that Canadians go out to be alone and come in to be with company, while elsewhere people go out to be with company and come home to be alone. And if you're really lucky to be at a cottage in the winter, in the morning, and there's like almost no sound, and then you'll hear like a branch cracking or something. The hinge is the door. One sound characteristic of the Canadian countryside is the slap of a screen door. I've known it since my childhood. Of course, it is intended to keep the insects out of the house in summer, but out of laziness, the screen door is often left on during the winter too, as mine is. The door has a coil spring attached to it so that it will slap shut quickly. Usually, there is another contraption on the side with a hairpin spring to snap it firm. If it isn't oiled, it squeaks. So the entire sound event is actually quite complex, consisting first of a swish as the door opens, then a swoosh as it closes, followed by a residual snap as the second spring is released to hold it shut.
The subject of doors could occupy a doctoral thesis or two. Every continent and climate has its own vocabulary and rhetoric of doors. As different as the languages of the people who open and close them. Every Canadian knows the three-toned Canadian train whistle without knowing it. Tuned to an E-flat minor triad with the fundamental at 311 Hz, it's the most authoritative sound mark of the country. Curiously analogous to the Yellow Bell or Huang Chang, which established the tuning for all music in the golden days of ancient China. The legend goes that when the tuning of the Yellow Bell was abandoned, the empire would fall into ruin. Something like that is happening here. For today, more and more train whistles are out of tune. And with the building of overpasses and tunnels, urban dwellers rarely ever hear them. Canadian railroads all run east-west. As the authority of the railroad vanishes, the east-west axis gives way to a south-north bias. For example, American invasion. Eventually, in the far distance, we hear the L-14 whistle, the signal for a level crossing, long, long, short, long. Which, incidentally, is also the rhythm of the opening phrase of the Canadian National Anthem.
It is warmer today than yesterday, and a heavy fog lies over the snow, so that the acoustic horizon surpasses the visual. Frederick Philip Grove talks about getting lost in the fog in over-prairie trails. Then he had to rely on the instinct of his horses. I had become all ear. Even though my buggy was silent and though the road was coated with a thin film of soft clay mud, I could distinctly hear by the muffled thud of the horses' hooves on the ground that they were running over a grade. That confirmed my bearings. So now I was close to the three-farm cluster. I listened intently again for the horses' thump. Yes, there was that muffled hoofbeat again. I was on the last grade that led to the angling road across the corner of the marsh. What would the prairies be without wind? It's the keynote sound here. The one against which everything else is registered. But to record it? Impossible. The microphone hasn't yet been invented to effectively record nature's most elementary sounds. The mistake in recording the environment is in trying to pull a huge spread of events far and near in all directions into a single focus. The soundscape isn't stereophonic. It's spherical. The stereophonic preoccupation in recording 
results from stereoscopy rather than any real understanding of the listening experience in which one is always at the center. One would like the microphone to observe the same respect for figure ground that our ears do, elevating those sounds we wish to receive and suppressing those we don't. But of course the microphone is not an ear and everything is registered according to its amplitude only. Could we imagine a future microphone? With a discrimination circuit to allow us to reproduce the wished-for soundscape rather than the real one? Or is that merely another form of pathetic fallacy that only the romantic recordist could hope for? And here's an example of a sound that is so delicate that the microphone picks it up better than the human ear. The value of the microphone is that it presents simply what is there. The tape recorder puts a frame around it often astonishing us with the sound events our real ears have missed. Claude confesses his excitement for recording. He is almost like a fighter pilot seeking out the enemy, the elusive sound object, slating his various dives at the material we've targeted for a take hoping the desired event will occur on cue, wondering whether to stalk it silently or prompt it or forget it and seek another campaign. So many things can go wrong, he says excitedly. Ruefully, I agree. When Murray and I recorded Winter, diary in 1997. We heard a lot of different winter sounds, but not cross-country skiing. And it is a typical sound of winter in Canada, and a very rich one. You can hear me skiing now, as well as people skiing beside me. People who live by the sea know how the color of the water changes constantly. But one has to live with a long winter to know the perpetual changes in the sound as well as the color of snow. And skiing sounds have a number of different elements. There's the, the push and the pull of the ski and the poles that hit into the snow and of course the breath of the skier and sometimes 
You can hear the wind in the trees. Snowmobiles in the distance. Even the lapse of an hour can alter it profoundly and the experienced listener can pinpoint the temperature by the sound of his footsteps in it. On the cold night it screeches. Sometimes a crust will build up to produce a crunchy quality or even several crusts separated by layers of powdery snow giving variations of dissonance with each step. We always take the most ordinary sounds for granted. Assuming cars to be universal, we forget that they sound different in different environments. On a country highway, we recorded the approach and departure of individual cars and trucks, sometimes lasting three minutes without any other sound.
Where else on earth could you do that? Excursion into park. Total isolation. We realized that the only way we could give an impression of soundscape here was by making sounds ourselves. When Murray Schaefer and I did the Winter Diary, one of the sequences was... Uh, called Calling, where we were in the forest and listening for the reverberation in a winter space. And in that case, it was a forest. And here I am on January 11, 2022, Gatineau Park. I'm going to try a similar experience where I'm going to walk in a circle away from the microphone and see what that sounds like and once in a while I'll cry, cry out like we did back then. Hey! And uh, you can hear the reverberation and the movement and it's a way to experience a, a winter soundscape by interacting with it. So here we go. So we set up the microphone in the snow and walked away from it calling in different directions. Hey! Hey! How far is it across the valley? What is the difference between a bare, deciduous forest and a leafy, evergreen one? Your voice will tell you. Hey! 
I came out alone in the car after Claude had gone to sleep. Never had I heard the world so silent. Is it near or far, this black landscape? My own slightest movement makes it seem near. The frosted crack of a distant tree makes it vast. My breathing brings it close again. Justin Winkler pointed out that the soundscape is essentially a static term, but here it seems dynamic, increasing to an infinite volume, then shrinking right inside me as my stomach growls. I turn the ignition key and I'm startled and relieved at the same time. My Escape Strange phenomenon this morning on waking. In my dream, I had been singing a solo song at some kind of gathering. I finished and everyone applauded enthusiastically. I woke to hear the propane heater come on. So the conclusion of my song and heater were synchronized, but I stress that I had sung a rather lengthy song to its conclusion before the applause of the heater. I even remembered the song and sang it over again to myself while lying in bed. Had I anticipated the end of it and paced the singing 
to a sound that I could somehow forehear? Or had the whole event occurred in the fraction of a second as the heater came on? Spotting some children knocking down some icicles in a St. Rose du Lac, we rushed over to record them, but frightened them away. So we knocked the icicles down ourselves and then kicked them along the street. Each chunk had a different pitch and pieces when they broke into pieces, the pitch rose. I was glad to have this other form of frozen water to add to our repertoire. The sun was setting. It was totally quiet. Eventually, the whisper of a jet aircraft became audible. It crossed the sky distantly. its passage lasting eight minutes without any other sound interrupting it. perfect sound event in an anesthetized environment.
I'd like to conclude Winter Diary Revisited with a quote from a book Murray wrote in 1977 called Music in the Cold. Here are the last 11 lines of that book. Saplings are beginning to sprout again in the moist earth. Beneath it, animals can be heard digging their burrows. Soon, the thrush will return. The old technology of waste is gone. What then remains? The old virtues, harmony, the universal soul, hard work. I will live super-sensitized, the antenna of a new race. I will create a new mythology. It will take time. It will take time. There will be time. I have many people to thank. Murray's essay is narrated by my father-in-law, the poet, political activist, and educator Robin Matthews. And in passing, I invite you to listen to an episode about his work, episode 88, called On Radical Listening and Political Poetry. I want to thank Robin for his skillful narration, composer Christian Callon for his technical advice and moral support, artistic director Darren Copeland and executive director Nadine Theriot-Copeland of New Adventures in Sound Art, or NASA. For their encouragements, and for hosting me as an artist-in-residence from the 1st of February through the 6th of February, 2022, at their facility in South River, Ontario. Thanks also to Eleanor James for the permission to use Murray's essay, for the photos of the farm, and for our conversation. Finally, I want to thank my wife, Sabrina, for her feedback, her patience, and her support.
Winter Diary Revisited was premiered at the Deep Wireless Festival of Radio and Transmission Art on Saturday, February 5th, 2022 at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. La version française de cet épisode, journal d'hiver revisité, se retrouve dans l'épisode 100 du balado conscient.